1: Good day. Welcome to New Books and History, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Coutillo of the Royal Historic Society. I'm a host on the channel. And today I'm pleased to have with us Professor Bruce Gilhode. Professor Gilhode is Professor of History at Ball State University. And today we are speaking about his book, Diplomacy Shot Down, The U-2 Crisis and Eisenhower's Aborted Mission to Moscow, 1959 to 1960. We're pres- I'm sorry. Welcome, Professor Gilhode.
0: Thank you. Pleasure to be here.
1: Why did you uh, write this book?
0: I've always been interested in the Eisenhower presidency. That's, that's the first answer. And then I had the opportunity many, many decades ago to uh, be a researcher for Tom Gates, who was uh, Eisenhower's last Secretary of Defense. Uh, Mr. Gates was a trustee of the University of Pennsylvania, and I was brought in at the time to help him uh, put together uh, an account of his public career, which included his years in the Pentagon, and uh, two years back in the mid-1970s as chief of the U.S. liaison office to the People's Republic of China. So, uh, I... We lived in Indiana and I was at Ball State. I uh, received a a leave basically to go out uh, and to work with him in Philadelphia. And then I spent uh, part of another year in Washington also uh, working with the University of Pennsylvania uh, to do this. And uh, I've just been interested in a variety of of subjects related to the Eisenhower administration, chiefly defense policy. And it just sort of developed from there. did a couple of books in the early 19, uh, early two thousands on Eisenhower and Harold McMillan. And in some respects that research sort of, uh, uh helped him The research that I did for that, for those two books, plus the research that I, I had done on Tom Gates, Pentagon career, sort of put this in. Plus I've always been interested in the U2 crisis. I, I, I just, uh, i thought that this was a a a tragedy for the eisenhower administration in many ways uh to end on this kind of this sour note and uh just always like to spend some time researching that and 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 of course tom gates was secretary of defense when that happened uh he was an eyewitness participant to all of what was going on at the time and so all of this sort of came together and um and that's that that came as a re, that the book came as a result of that I guess is the best way of saying it
1: now, what is the thesis of your book?
0: Yes, what I argue is that um the way the u two crisis i think this is kind of a general statement, but I think the way it's been interpreted in the past by by many people is that um uh The great tragedy of the crisis, the U2 crisis, was the collapse of the uh, summit conference at Paris in May of 1960. That this was this was a a major event that had been looked forward to diplomatically, uh, uh, not just uh, around the world, but also apparently in the Soviet Union. And so, when Khrushchev, after uh, after the Russians succeeded in bringing down Francis Gary Powers and and not getting a an apology out of Eisen, a public apology out of Eisenhower for this invasion of Soviet airspace, uh, walked out of the conference, the peace conference in Paris on May 16, and so the the West and Eisenhower and Khrushchev never had the opportunity to negotiate um, a a treaty dealing with nuclear testing the testing of nuclear weapons which is what they had been working for for really 3 or 4 years prior to that at the uh, at the foreign ministers level and the uh, the failure of the summit meant that uh they, that this agreement was never going to be reached uh, and an opportunity was lost for that and so um i think it's uh uh that's kind of been sort of the prevailing interpretation, but what I argue in, in the book is that the, the, the big tragedy was that Khrushchev not just walked away from the summit, but he also canceled Eisenhower's visit to the Soviet Union, which was scheduled for June of 1960. So the whole uh, the whole process diplomatically had started in uh, August, early August of 1959 when Eisenhower announced that he and Khrushchev were going to exchange visits to each other's countries. that Khrushchev was going to come to the United States, and then Eisenhower was going to visit the Soviet Union. And this was going to be a, a, a real icebreaker, I think you could say, in the Cold War. Uh, the, the United States had never, uh, uh, there had been no Russian leader who had ever come to the United States, and Khrushchev was going to be the first one to do that. And so he was going to come in September, and originally the discussion was that Eisenhower was going to visit the Soviet Union sometime later in 1959. So when Khrushchev and Eisenhower met at camp in in September, um, both of them agreed that there was going to be a summit conference to discuss various things, including a a possible nuclear test ban, but also possibly Berlin. Uh, and the, dis- the disagreements over Berlin that were going on at the time, and uh, that Eisenhower then would visit the Soviet Union after the summit conference. So eventually, they wound up settling on, on June, rather than the rather than the, the late 1959 date. But I argue that 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 was the, the tragedy of it because Eisenhower would have been very well received in the Soviet Union. He visited there in August of 1945, uh, as Stalin's guest, and the you know there was a tremendous affection for Eisenhower in the Soviet Union at the time. He, the symbol of America's military defeat of the of the Germans, of the Nazis, uh, he he came to uh, <clears throat> uh, the Soviet Union in August of 45 to Moscow. Uh, by Marshal Zhukov who was the the Soviet the great Soviet military hero and the fact that them obviously publicly were getting on to the world, there was a future for American Soviet relations i guess is what saying. um and that he he had every reason to suspect from the U2 that he was going to be well received in the Soviet Union and this would have been a tremendous uh that would have gone on in Russia, because Eisenhower would have been the first uh, uh, American leader to visit the Soviet Union and able to speak directly to the America, or to the Russian people over television and radio. Uh, of, course, of course, Roosevelt visited uh, the Soviet Union uh, in 1945 at the Yalta Conference, you know Stalin attended, of course. But he had not really spoken to the Russian people as such, and so this was some of those visits were seen as a, a major for a step forward in improving American-Soviet relations, and maybe beginning a period of of negotiations um, between the leadership of the country uh, opposed to the the confrontation that, that had taken place. Uh, the era of confrontation, I guess you could say, that it had taken place ever since about 1946. So when, when Khrushchev uh, canceled Eisenhower's visit, then that really meant uh, American-Soviet relations were going nowhere. Uh, and there would almost have to be a start at some point to, uh, to deal with the whole issue, all, all the outstanding issues, Berlin, uh, the nuclear uh, uh, test, uh, the situation in, going on in the third world in places like uh, Southeast Asia, other places like that, Cuba, that wasn't going to come up for, for discussion, but later became obviously a major issue. Uh, so all of that just sort of collapsed. And when Eisenhower left the office, uh, he didn't he didn't have the action of something that he, he definitely wanted, and that was to try to, should we say, as the term was at the time, thaw the Cold War. So that's the argument. The argument is not necessarily that the, the tragedy of the U-2 crisis was the Collapse uh, of the summit, but the cancellation of Eisenhower's visit to the Soviet Union, and not that the cancellation of or the yeah, cancellation of the summit was not important, it was. But it also, but but the fact that Eisenhower was not going to visit the Soviet Union in personal terms for Eisenhower was a major, major disappointment.
1: On what basis could it be said that President Eisenhower was quote personally popular unquote in the Soviet Union? Whereas uh, there polls done testifying to this fact, or some other measurements that we can ascertain post facto. Uh,
0: no, I you know obviously I don't think you could talk about any poll situation and things like that. We have um, we have the example of '95 of uh, how he received there. We have the. Um, uh, well, we have conversations that between uh, Admiral, Admiral, excuse me, Ambassador Llewellyn Thompson about popularity between Ambassador Thompson, Llewellyn Thompson, and Khrushchev about Eisenhower's popularity. Um, we also have uh, 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 an oral uh of Tumanov, who was a uh, embassy uh, political attaché in the American embassy. His left that talked about uh, Eisenhower's popularity with the Soviet Union within the Soviet Union. Um, so you can you can look on you can look on those I mean that type of historical evidence uh, when the two crisis was sort of brewing still when they were still deciding uh, what the outcome of this was going to be after uh, after Churchill on March 7th that, or excuse me on May 7th that uh the Soviet Union had powers in, in custody, which was not expected to, which was not supposed to be possible according according to Alan Dulles and the CIA. Um, the, the, nobody could survive a, a being shot down and uh, and all of that. Uh, so Americans were you know tremendously surprised that powers was alive and the Soviet country um, so we have conversations between Khrushchev and Thompson about that time, and Khrushchev was saying, "Well, maybe Eisenhower shouldn't come to the United, come to the Soviet Union after all, because the Soviet people will uh, remember; uh, it'll be on the youth crisis, will be on uh, on people's minds, and they might not agree very well." And Thompson said to him, no, "Don't worry about that; uh, we don't have to worry about the Soviet people not welcoming Eisenhower. He will." Um, uh, and we believe that the Russian people will be fine. Of course, that wasn't the answer that that Khrushchev uh, was searching for. I think he wanted Thompson to say, "Well, under the circumstances, I may, may." But they, there was the, the expectation that even with the U-2 crisis, that uh, Eisenhower was going to go ahead and uh, and visit the Soviet Union. He had a press conference on May 11, where uh, he was asked by Lawrence Berg, well. What, what, you whether know, it was pressed whether it was a wise thing for him to go to the Soviet Union, considering the heightened tensions, and Eisenhower said, "Well, I, I intend to go." Let's just put it that way. So uh, I think uh, polling. Uh, no, I can't cite any <clears throat> any poll that was taking <laughs> taking place in the Union about that. But uh, I mean, for a lot of people, the the memory of World War II uh, was still in in their minds. Uh, this is. Fifteen years after the surrender of the Nazis, uh, people have to remember, uh, and uh, Eisenhower was associated with a victory over over the Russians, and um, you know that was that was a that was a powerful uh, endorsement of him as an individual. <clears throat>
1: In uh, what way or fashion could have President Eisenhower's admitted talents as a crowd-pleaser have possibly changed, quote, the direction of the Cold War, unquote? Uh,
0: As a crowd-pleaser?
1: Yes, in terms of the... the,
0: Well, I think it's... Yeah. After the Republicans were... Uh, defeated uh, substantially in the congressional in 1958, there there was a it rec- was a bad rec- in the United States economic recession that took place around that time, and um, it was a huge setback uh, for the Republicans. The losses that they took in the House and in the Senate, and after that political defeat, uh, James Haggerty. Who was Eisenhower's press secretary and um, also a, a kind of a, a very canny political advisor to him? By that point, uh, he had uh, he had influence within the situation that went on went beyond the rather kind of the routine uh, title of his job description, which was press secretary. But he came to Eisenhower, and he suggested that the Republicans had to be more aggressive or they were going to be in bigger trouble in 1960. which was a presidential election year. And he said that Eisenhower should uh, undertake an extensive series of trips um, around the world as an American goodwill ambassador, as an ambassador of peace, uh, as an ambassador of friendly, harmonious relations between the uh, countries in the world. And uh, he set up a, uh, a uh, an itinerary, I guess as you could say, for Eisenhower. It included visits to Europe, France, and Britain, and West Germany. That came after Eisenhower uh, announced the, the exchange of visits between himself and Khrushchev. Uh, Iran, India. Uh, let me think now. Uh, the Philippines, a variety of places around the world, and were just en- uh, enormous crowds it turned out for him. Easily uh, more than more than a million in um, in India, for example. And the 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 when Eisenhower appeared with the British Prime Minister uh, Nehru in a. Uh, in, in a ride through Delhi and, and so forth, the, the crowds pressed in on the car, uh, on, on the vehicle itself that Eisenhower was, and Nehru were riding in and actually got very concerned, people that were, were supposed to be protecting uh, both leaders, uh, that they had to basically push these people away from this because they were trying to get close to Eisenhower and and maybe get to shake his hand or something like that. But the same sort of thing happened in Paris. There were a million people that turned out from Paris. It was the estimate of about that million in in Bonn. Eisenhower was wondering whether he was uh, uh he was gonna be welcomed. He hadn't been back to Britain, or assuming he hadn't been back to Germany since the war, and he was wondering how he was gonna be received in in um Bonn uh in Germany. And he didn't need to worry. Uh, there was an enormous turnout of people trying to see Eisenhower. And as he rode from the airport to downtown Bonn with the German Chancellor, Conrad Adenauer, it, it was just an enormous outpouring. And, of course, in Britain, Eisenhower had always been uh, very popular. So you have all of these places that Eisenhower had visited prior to 1960. And it, it was just a demonstration that – in. people's minds, uh, Eisenhower was sort of kind of the world's first citizen. Everybody felt they had a certain attachment to this man because he had been the, um, well, the reputation that he had was he's the person, he's the man who beat Hitler. And the rest, of course, could could trade on, and the Soviets could trade on that same sort of thing. And you would expect that a a similar sort of... um, Response might uh, affect him there too, and and he would be seen in a he would be a, seen as a positive representation uh, of the United States. Richard Nix visited um, the Soviet Union in um, July of 1959, and he is that was the time of the so, so-called Kitchen Debate. Uh, you might remember where he and Khrushchev sort of got into it rhetorically. Uh, an argument that worked in Nixon's political favor, because or political uh, uh, advantage, because it was televised. But by and large, Nixon was reasonably well uh, accepted by the by the Russians. And Milton Eisenhower, Eisenhower's brother, or younger brother, who was the president of uh, Johns Hopkins University at the time, went along uh, on that trip with Nixon. Some thought it was <laughs> some thought Nixon put. Something Eisenhower put his brother on that keep an eye on Nixon. Uh, Nixon had to know that um, Milton Eisenhower, who was always somewhat skeptical of Nixon, uh, was there, and so forth. But when Nick, when Milton came back, he later gave a an oral history for the Eisenhower Library, and he said talked about how fantastically well he had been received as the brother of Eisenhower, and uh, he just thought there would be a, a tremendous reception for Eisenhower. Uh, in the Soviet Union, on, on the basis of that, so we have we have those sorts of things, and, and if, you, if you look at it in the context of Eisenhower spending his last parts of his last two years in office as a, a person going abroad to give uh, uh, expression to American, um, so we say American freedom and liberty, uh, prosperity, even um, and being well received for that, that that might have translated over into into his reception in the Soviet Union. He was going to be going to uh, uh, Leningrad, Kiev, Moscow, of course, and then he was going to be departing uh, the Soviet Union from <clears throat> uh which is in Siberia, and by Lake Baikal, because he had, as part of this itinerary, it included a trip to Japan. So he was going to leave the Soviet Union from the east, And uh, and continue on from Japan and South Korea, excuse me, South Korea and um, I believe the Philippines even, maybe just South Korea. Uh, But maybe Philippines are going to be part of it too, so yeah.
1: Does not the underlying tenor of your argument imply that there was a willingness on the part of Soviet leaders to make concessions on issues such as Berlin, open skies, etc.? and does the existing literature on the subject matter show evidence of uh, such willingness
0: um well i don't know about berlin and uh, whether it was an in- indication of a willingness to talk there um, eisenhower well okay let, let me back up the when eisenhower visited uh Germany, Britain, and France in August of 59, after he had announced this this exchange of business between Khrushchev and the United States. uh, Macmillan, the British Prime Minister, and Charles de Gaulle, the French president, and uh, Adenauer, the German chancellor, uh, weren't real enthusiastic about uh, discussing Berlin with uh, Khrushchev at the time. I think Eisenhower was willing to... Open that up to to a certain extent, because they just felt that Khrushchev's proposal on Berlin to make it a uh, kind of a free city under the UN control with withdrawal of uh, occupation forces on that basis just uh, opened up just wasn't sufficient. And of course, and they 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 revisited that issue in December of '59 at what was called the Western Summit, which was designed to have uh, those individuals talk about uh, the agenda for the for, for the summit meeting. And they more or less decided to drop Berlin as a subject and just focus on arms control, arms testing. And uh, the testing of nuclear weapons was put it that way. <clears throat> and leave some of these other issues that didn't lend themselves to any, uh, uh, you know, any foreseeable resolution and just talk about that and see if something can be done. But what, of course, what the, what the Americans wanted was uh, a a rigorous form of testing, nuclear testing uh, to be put into effect. And apparently Khrushchev was, according to some, uh, Khrushchev was willing to uh, go along with that or at least discuss it. And would that, would that open itself up to, uh, you know, an improvement of, of relations if if you could have nuclear if you can have nuclear testing. So, maybe on that issue, there may have been some progress at some point. It most likely wouldn't have come at Paris. That's I, I try to argue because it was such a complicated subject. It would have had to come through negotiations between Eisenhower and Khrushchev at some other point, perhaps after the summit or at the foreign ministers level. But maybe they could set. Up some some rationale for that, but uh, the the feeling was is that there there might have been some give on the Russians part over the uh, issue of te- of, uh, of well not I'm sorry not testing uh, I'm wrong uh, on inspection uh, setting up stations for the the inspection of these tests uh, to quote Ronald Reagan trust but verify so there had to be some sort of verification of of these uh, of these nuclear tests if they were to take place. So I think that's what some people were sort of hanging their hat on diplomatically, that they would move in that direction and, um, and possibly that would help to ease uh, the tensions of the Cold War to a certain extent or at least it would form the basis for uh, negotiations on the subject or negotiations on the issue after uh, Eisenhower left office.
1: How how did the controversy over the so-called missile gap come into your narrative?
0: Uh, well, uh, yeah, that's a good question. That's an excellent question. Oh. Eisenhower. Uh, and this is this is being seen increasingly so in the in the books that are coming out on, on Eisenhower. Um. At least diplomatically, and I think you could say the same thing in in terms of domestic relations too Eisenhower would have some of these should we say some of these broad goals, but there would always be uh one two it would be more than one let's put it that way, there would be more than one objective that Eisenhower would have in mind with these so um uh, he wanted to he wanted to use uh symmetry. To improve relations with uh, the Soviet Union and build on the idea of Khrushchev and Eisenhower having these agreements that would that would, uh, uh, should we say, thaw some of the aspects of the Cold War. But what he also was concerned about was the escalating arms race here in the United States. Here, the escalating arms race between the two uh, the two superpowers. And with the U-2, I think this has well, been pretty well established, with the U-2 and the information, that, the photographic information that the United States was acquiring of what was perceived to be the Soviet military establishment, Eisenhower did not, uh, did not develop uh, the nuclear capability to satisfy uh, critics in the Democratic Party and even some critics in the Republican Party, Nelson Rockefeller being one, who felt that there ought to be more of an effort on um, developing um, American nuclear capability because the, the view was that the Russians were getting far ahead of us on this after Sputnik that was not true Eisenhower couldn't say it wasn't true because that would have that would involve uh, releasing information about the u2 flights and that was not going to happen um, but he was concerned after he left office the military-industrial complex like speech would be one example of that of this ever accelerating arms race taking more and more and more of, um, national spending and what that would mean toward, um, basically putting an economy that was almost on a perpetual war footing. So one of the objectives that he had uh, in this effort to try to solve the cold war was to reduce expenses on military spending. Um, uh, people sometimes forget that uh, back then if you, you had a budget that was in the range of a federal budget was in the range of about $70 billion a year, a little bit more, somewhat more and about $40 billion of that or $4 out of seven was going toward the military. And it wasn't all going obviously for nuclear weapons, a fraction of that really, but that was the one that was kind of driving uh, military expenditures was, was the strategic aspect of things. And Eisenhower wanted to, wanted to bring that down he also wanted i think in some respects to kind of open the door for a, a strong presidential campaign by richard nixon with the missile gap with the charges of, of the missile gap being what they were but i wanted to do in 1959 and 1960 was negotiate defense budgets that would hold the line on defense spending and deal with this question of, of were we falling farther and farther than we're, we're making advancements of our own here? And of course, that meant working with the with the opposition, the political opposition in Congress, which was Sam Rayburn, the Speaker of the House, and Lyndon Johnson, the Speaker of the Senate. And in the spring of 1960, um, they, they were in the process of negotiating uh, defense budget that both parties could support, which basically confirmed that uh, the Eisenhower administration defense budget was reasonably taking care of the the needs of the country uh, relative to the Soviet Union. And there really wasn't, they didn't deal with the fact of whether there was a missile gap or or that sort of thing. The Soviets were were expanding their capability and that, that was nobody challenged that, but the United States still had a superior uh, capability relative to the Russians, especially when you considered what the the, uh, the help of American allies was in, in terms of NATO and, and places and organizations such as that. But the, when the when the Soviets knocked brought down the U-2, then I think that I try to argue that that regalvanized the missile gap issue. And it made it seem that the charges that had been made about Soviet technological superiority relative to the United States uh, had some basis. And once that happened, then the missile gap became a big issue again uh, in the summer of 1960 and in the presidential campaign uh, that followed in the fall Uh, or in the spring spring and summer of 60 and then, uh, then again in the fall and that that was a, an enormous disappointment to Eisenhower because that meant that the Cold War was going to continue and there was going to be an expanded effort on the American part to build up more and more of its strategic capability and the Russians were of course going to try to match that as they perceived uh, as they perceived that particular threat So I think what I try to argue is that with the passage of the defense budget in the spring of 1960, that Eisenhower and his national security officers had sort of muted the missile gap issue because that defense budget had been passed by uh, bipartisan, shall we say, uh, with with Democratic support uh, in the... uh, in the House and in the, and in the Senate, but when Powers was shot down, then that issues, uh, issues a, a new a new lease on life politically, and that had to be a, a big disappointment to Eisenhower.
1: Why did uh, President Eisenhower allow the first of May uh, U2 uh, flight to go ahead?
0: Yeah. That's another great question. <laughs> um, all right, I, I started to keep so long, you know. Uh, Khrushchev gave a speech. I believe it was on June. I believe it was on January 18 of 1960. Speech. Out- this speech kind of came as an. Out- of the um, visit that he made to the United States uh, in 1916, September 1960 the speech was made a couple weeks after he had accepted Eisenhower's and Macmillan's and de Gaulle's and Ed, well the three of them uh the invitation to accept the summit uh summit meeting uh in in uh in May And in that speech, he did two things. He announced that uh, the Soviets were going to um, reduce the size of the Red Army by a third in the next couple of years. And that was really significant because that was basically a signal to the West that you don't have to worry about Berlin. some point, Russians are going to be willing to do, to negotiate that. Put that at the level, start at the level of foreign ministers, and then eventually go for In other words, the Soviets were not going to keep their, their, their Eastern Europe, signified by the Red Army here, there uh, indefinitely. And he had had conversations with Llewellyn Thompson, about. the American ambassador, Llewellyn Thompson. Bemoaning the fact that it was so expensive for the Russians to keep this standing army, this army of occupation, indefinitely in Eastern Europe, in Poland, in obviously in Germany, in Czechoslovakia, and so forth. And he By reducing the size of the Red Army, he was basically sending a signal that like, some of those were going to be brought back out of. It, it was designed to basically say to the, uh, the Americans they didn't have to worry about the Soviets crossing over into West Berlin. Threatening Western land, threatening uh, Germany, and, and so on. But he also said in the same speech that the Soviets were developing a new, fantastic weapon, which could only be interpreted as a nuclear weapon. The reason why that was made was to basically uh, defuse the criticism that he was going to get from the leaders of the Red Army for reducing the size of the of, of the Red Army. Very unpopular. Uh, very, un- the, the, the decision to reduce the size of the Red Army was very unpopular with the Red Army, the leadership. And saying that there was going to be this, this capability that had to develop nuclear weapons, and more importantly, to hide them, conceal was the word that he used, be able to conceal them. Uh, it was designed to re- release some of this pressure that he was going to feel from his own military. All right, now what happens? That speech gets read in the United States and interpreted by the intelligence people, Alan Dulles and the CIA, and down from there. And they don't read the other for the first part. They don't attach much importance to the part, which is what Khrushchev wanted. (laughs) He wanted the Americans to look at that and say, all right, you don't need to worry about Berlin any longer. Look at the second part about this, ability to, con- and he used, these, used the term about being able to produce this massive stockpile of nuclear weapons and to be able to conceal it, that's what the Americans took seriously. Even though it was basically a bluff, you know, it was basically a bluff. And then shortly after that speech, the Russians tested a, a weapon, and basically not a weapon, a rocket, But they fired 5,000 miles from the Soviet Union out into the Pacific in the direction of Hawaii, all places to settle, you know, with Pearl Harbor and all of that in in the American imagination. And that got the people in the intelligence establishment wanting to have more U-2 flights. And James Doolittle, who was a prominent member of uh, what was called the PFIA, the President's Foreign Intelligence Advisory Board, looking at that speech, examining that speech, started to bring more pressure on how to have these U 2 flights in advance of the summit before any agreements could be reached to try to uh, negotiate this out. Now, what happened were two things. First of all, the British sent a U 2 flight over the in early February. And they didn't encounter anything of, uh, any, uh, of any serious. And the British role in these U-2 flights was, was as close to being hyper-secret as you can find, because Harold McMillan, the British Prime Minister, was willing to go along with this, but he certainly did not want uh, any word of British involvement in this to, to come up. But nevertheless, there was a flight that was taken by a, uh, a British pilot whose name was John MacArthur, and it didn't, it didn't uh, encounter anything, uh, the, the, the concern. It was anything any different than what the Russians had been supposedly doing before. No evidence of concealment, no evidence of increased missile construction or missile sites, nothing like this. Then there was another one in early April. This was flown by an American. And... The Russians tried to bring this flight down. They, they detected it. They couldn't. They botched the command and communication aspect of things, and didn't even manage. To, I think didn't even manage to get a plane in the air to intercept it. And that plane flew its route and landed uh, in Iran. That was its. The, that was the place where it, it, it touched down. This was in early April. So Eisenhower had given the go ahead to. Uh, so we say an expanded American. Uh, excuse me, American uh, American uh, surveillance surveillance program in advance of the summit. And again, same thing. Nothing, nothing of any great significance came as a consequence of that of that uh, of that flight. There's no evidence of Soviet concealment, no evidence of Soviet expansion, everything like that. But they were concerned about some some construction that was going on near the town of or near, near the city of Sverdlovsk in sort of in central Russia. That was considered to be the Pittsburgh, quote-unquote, of the Soviet Union, which was an industrial center similar to what we would associate with Pittsburgh in this country. And the CIA pressed Eisenhower for one more flight prior to the summit. And Eisenhower gave the go-ahead that the flight could take place between April 25 and May 1. But if it hadn't taken place by that time, then... It was off. You couldn't, you, you couldn't do it. Uh, so the reason for this goes back to uh, a lot of people have called this, this uh, Pearl Harbor neurosis that existed at upper levels of American uh, national security policy. And that was that Pearl Harbor came as a consequence of a surprise attack. And the, the North Korean attack on South Korea came as a consequence of a surprise attack, and that the United States could not leave itself open to a surprise attack in the age of nuclear weapons. And therefore, these, this flight was necessary before you could have any meaningful arms control negotiations with the Russians. Uh, what I try to say in the book, too, is that another reason for having the flight on May 1st was to get it out of the way before the summit. That's one reason. But there was no reason to suspect that this flight wouldn't be successful uh the Russians had completely botched the the uh the D, the uh, April seventh flight and uh seemed to indicate that uh, they didn't have the capability to to uh, bring down an american u two having said that uh Khrushchev was furious over the failure on April seven and basically told the uh, the Russian military, next time they do this, make sure you bring it down or there's going to be, uh, there's going to be some changes at the top uh, if you can't, can't do this. So in, in a sense, when powers came over and was flying in the neighborhood in the vicinity of Sverdlovsk, uh, there was this attempt to bring him down, which was successful. Um, it was not the way they intended but nevertheless, uh, they did manage to bring powers down. So it was happening on May 1st because that was what Eisenhower had agreed to in advance of, of the summit conference. And the reason that he, he agreed to it was because they wanted the intelligence establishment wanted to settle this issue of whether there was the likelihood, the possibility—not the likelihood, but the possibility—of a surprise attack on the United States by Soviet Union with nuclear weapons. And it traces that. Let's try to argue it traces its way back in some respects to that January 18 speech, I believe it was January 18, yeah, that, that speech in uh, that he gave about reducing the size of the Red Army and uh, developing uh, these new advanced uh, Soviet missiles capability.
1: Did Khrushchev purposely ask concessions from Eisenhower in the aftermath of the downing of the uh, Gary Powers and the U2. Uh, did he, he ask for
0: concessions?
1: no d- yes, did he ask concessions from Eisenhower, which he knew Eisenhower could not give him, or did he hope that Eisenhower, to in essence, agreed to what he was asking for?
0: Uh, well, he he, I'm trying to think here specifically of the of the concessions. Uh, one uh, that there be there would be no more flights. Two, um, that the people who are responsible for the flights uh, should be disciplined and, uh, and 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 dealt with. And three, uh, that Eisenhower issue a public apology. Uh, on the first point, Eisenhower uh, uh, agreed in a kind of a backhanded way. Once, once Powers had been shot down and was in Soviet custody, Eisenhower terminated the flights. This was not done uh, to because Khrushchev uh, asked that he do it. That came later, but the flights had been the flights were canceled. There wasn't going to be Eisenhower was not going to discipline anybody like Alan Dulles. Uh, one presumes that he was the target for for Khrushchev among others, but but maybe the, 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 the could have been Gates, could have been Nathan Twining, who was the head of the uh, uh, jo- uh, he was chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Maybe Eisenhower he was expecting that. And then the public apology for the flights themselves, and so on the second and the third points, there he was simple, Eisenhower simply was not going to give in. He was um, uh, on May 11 when he had his press conference. There he said, "Nobody wants another Pearl Harbor. That's the reason why we did it. That's why we had these flights, and uh, there was absolutely uh, no uh, no regret about the." Nature of that flight, he did he did agree. Well, flip this way. He did admit that the flights had been canceled and said that that if that's a a problem for Khrushchev as far as the continuation of the summit conference is concerned, that should not be uh, an obstacle because we've already said that we're not going to have any more of these. There will not be any more of these flights. Indefinitely. So, but Khrushchev really couldn't. I don't think he could take that as much of a concession in terms of satisfying his own critics. that He was being firm enough with the, with the Americans, because that had happened. That already happened uh, before the conference. But on the other two, Eisenhower said, "No. There's just uh, there will be no apology, uh, and there will be no discipline of the uh, people that were involved." and some have maintained that that might have made a difference if eisenhower had sacked a couple of the higher level uh uh high level the administration who may have been involved in that and in fact it, this is interesting uh, uh dr casino i in the when the when the Soviets succeeded in bringing down the u2 alan dulles offered to resign basically the director of the cia basically to uh accept the blame for this and Eisenhower he said, not going to not, not blame somebody underneath me I'm I agreed to this uh, I will accept the responsibility and for whatever whatever as a consequence of it uh, would that have satisfied Khrushchev would, would he have been to uh, negotiate if he had uh, the resignation of, of some high level American people I, I don't know if if there's an answer to that, a conclusive answer that you could give. But he wasn't Eisenhower was not going to apologize. And the reason he wasn't going to apologize was because there had been such a an an extensive Soviet network of espionage in the United States. And there had been a number of people who had been tried and convicted not only in the United States but in other countries in the West of 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 espionage by Soviet agents. Um, there was a fairly well-known practice that the Russians had of uh, coming to the United States, being officers, with, you know, in the UN and uh, primarily places like that, and going on domestic flights, and in the process of these domestic flights, going over certain places and photographing those, uh, and that's a kind of a low-tech way of getting aerial es- espionage and aerial. Uh, uh, Information, that sort of thing. But Eisenhower said, "You know, we're not going to apologize for efforts to obtain information about the capability of a, of a potential enemy when, you know, this is going on in the United States, where we have our potential enemy taking advantage of the freedoms and the uh, the flexibility to travel just about anywhere you want in the United States to uh, to see what the American military and industrial construction looks like." So. Uh, No, Khrushchev did not get any concessions from Eisenhower. uh, And I think Eisenhower realized that uh, that was simply something that he he was unwilling to do.
1: If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be?
0: Um, Well, I think it would be that this was uh, sort of an unparalleled opportunity. For uh, improvement in relations that uh, it, uh, Eisenhower's trip potential trip is poten- his ability to speak to the, to the people of the Soviet Union on TV uh, without being uh, obviously there wasn't going to be any censoring of this and and the impact that that would have had on um, you know uh, Cold War history, would have been remarkable, and it's you know in in, in a sense I, I try to say this was sort of an unforced error. Eisenhower, the Eisenhower administration didn't need to take this step uh, as, as they did because the American military capability was far superior to that of the Soviet Union. I would say that that's uh, just to go back to the to the thesis here that this was a this was an opportunity for improved relations between slightly improved that guess you could say slightly improved relations between uh, the superpowers and it wasn't until you know it, it really wasn't until about nineteen seventy two I believe when uh, Nixon president Nixon premier Brezhnev negotiated a salt agreement that. The two sides were able to do something about the proliferation of nuclear weapons. Up to that point, it was kind of going on pretty much unchecked on both sides.
1: Upon that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Professor Gilhod, for being so kind as to speak with us today. Thank you. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor.
0: Thank you. Pleasure to meet you.